دست برد This is the Master of Cinema Cast. My name is Joachim. And my name's Tom. And today we will be talking about Lucino Visconti's Rocco and his brothers, or Count of Leonate Pozzolo, Lucino Visconti. I mean, this guy, he's a character. Um, that's one word to describe yes. him. <laughs> I'd, I'd, say, I'd seen Rocco and his brothers a few years ago, but I didn't really know a great deal about Luciano Visconti. And the more I found out about him, I, I need to. I think I need to watch a film about him. I think mm-hmm. it'd be most interesting. He, he, he's not like your average kind of human being, to say the least. He's had the most interesting life, even outside of becoming a filmmaker, which in of itself is, is quite a um, fascinating kind of career path to take. But mm-hmm. he, he was born into virtually aristocracy. Was he not? I think that is what we're saying. Yeah, I think his father was a duke and he was born into sort of a prominent noble Milanese family. He starts off directing opera and he's friends with the Pacinis. And <laughs> as you do. Um, as you do, yeah. <laughs> has a succession of incredible houses. He's also a dedicated socialist. He happens mm-hmm. to be homosexual. And he, he has a uh, love affair with the director, Zaffarelli, and goes on to make, I think, I think we can both agree, a, a fairly interesting filmography. I'm currently working my way through it. Um, this morning I, I got as far as Sandra, but he... He, he, he kind of kickstarts the Italian neorealism f- uh, f- uh, movement. And I think it's really interesting for us to kind of talk about kind of Italian neorealism because what was your kind of, what's your kind of understanding or your kind of, your exposure to it? Um, I've seen quite, um, quite a few uh, due to film studies. Um, obviously, Bicycle Thieves is like the one that is always shown in film studies class. Um, but this is Ossessione, which uh, Visconti made in '43. This is, as you say, the one that really started it all. Um, other than that, um, I've also seen things like Umberto D, uh, which also could be classified as neorealism. But there is like a debate going on whether or not like Italian neorealism, uh, is that really just Bicycle Thieves and Ossessione, really? Yeah, uh, because n- no one seems to like follow or adhere to any set of rules. Well, well this is it because when we first talked about doing Rockabilly's Brothers, I went on Wikipedia, and I know it's the, the greatest source of information <laughs> one can possibly find, and it's very much a debate. But if you go on Wikipedia and you go on the Italian neorealism page, there's a list there of what's considered to be the main works of neorealism. And the more I researched it, the more those films turned up over and over again. So I kind of took that as a good place to start mm. in a sense. And I'm, I've started off with Vosessienne and I'm, I'm literally, I think I've just got to um, Rome 11 o'clock. So I haven't quite got to Umberto D yet, which I've not seen. It is, I think it's two more down the list. And I was actually quite surprised because this is a, a movement which has a kind of a manifesto, mm-hmm. so to speak. I think there are recurring themes that run through it. I certainly feel there are. There's a DNA which goes through them, 
Uh, possibly the exception is um, to see his miracle in Milan, which I kind of thought was neorealism meets Ealing comedy. Up until that point, I do, I do think you could link them stylistically in some respects. But even saying that, films like kind of Shoe Shine, which another one to see because which is kind of considered to be like I think it's like the third in the cycle of neorealism. Everyone talks about them being shot on location. Well, that's clearly been shot in a studio. Mm-hmm. And thematically, they're all very different. But I did see this kind of connecting tissue. I, well, to date, I have seen this connecting tissue. And I have to confess, I've been binge watching them over the past six weeks. And for me, it's been revelatory. I've <laughs> seen some of these films before, um, The Bicycle Thieves amongst them. But I hadn't. I've seen um, Rosalini's War Trilogy, uh, like uh, Open City Pies and, um, and Stromboli, which. That's brilliant. Uh, yes. What I absolutely adored about Stromboli, going back to it again, was I didn't realise... I, I recently picked up the Region B version of Antonioni's uh, L'Aventura, and you can see the island of Stromboli from the oh, island yeah. that they're on at the beginning. And it's one of those kind of like film kind of nerdy moments where you, you feel this kind of immense... <laughs> smug self-satisfaction that you've suddenly noted but what I loved about g- going through them was is that I could genuinely believe that the characters that turn up in each of these films inhabit the same universe mm-hmm. so you, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if you bumped into these people in the other films I mean Stromboli I think was, it had probably been the standout so far for me as well as um, Bellissima, which is one of the Visconti's films, and it's out on Master Cinema, um, a DVD release. Have you actually watched that yet? Uh, I have it in front of me, but I have yet to watch it. That one and Conversation piece are the one, two Visconti's that I have, but I have yet to watch. So. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend um, mm-hmm. watching Bellissima because it's one of those films where it starts off and you think it's going to be a comedy of sorts, and it is literally heartbreaking watching it. Mm. And there's, I, I don't know, the, the general premise of the story is that you have a, a mother who is kind of duped into thinking that her daughter, her a young, she must be like six or seven or something like that. And she's duped into thinking that she might have some kind of career in films. And they live in, she, she lives this kind of pretty crappy existence with her kind of slobbish husband. And it becomes, it, it, it's blatantly apparent from the off that this child has no ability whatsoever. <laughs> and the point of the film is the mother coming to realise it. And mm. you think it's going to be quite funny. Like, as she kind of really, really puts her heart and soul into her daughter's career. Mm. But the film kind of makes a mockery out of you in the end because it's tragic in, in absolutely every way. It is achingly sad this mm. film and it, it I can honestly say there is a moment where the lead character breaks down and starts crying and just she just starts saying help and from what I understand the whole scene was completely unrehearsed it was just something that the uh, the, uh, the lead actress I think it's Anna Magini I think her name was but she just kind of ad-libbed it at the time and the camera just stays on her. She's, she's there and her daughter's like sleeping in her arms and she's kissing and she's asking for help. And I have to honestly say, without any bombast, it was one of the most emotional moments I've ever had watching a film, which isn't to say I kind of burst into tears, but I suddenly got this woman 
and I, mm-hmm. I, I completely felt the agony of the scene. And that's what I found about these Italian neorealist films is that they don't seem to be about life-changingly huge, significant events. They're about people trying to get a job. Yeah. They're, they're about people who feel stuck in the situation. I mean, especially Stromboli. I mean, you, you have a woman who just wants to, from the off, she just want, Ingrid Berman just wants to get off that island <laughs> and literally circumstance means is that she can't and it, it, it's just really awful you know, watching her go through this and like the bicycle thieves and then it's, it's about a man who wants a job to pay for his kid mm. so they can have a meal and, and it's it's anyway like I said it's been revelatory to me because I can genuinely say I've watched some of the films which I I, I, I know are my favourite films I've ever watched I, 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 I honestly can't wait to go back to them um, in the case of um, what's accepted to be the first uh, nearest film, Obsession by Visconti, I watched that twice in two days. I saw it on the Friday night. I woke up Saturday. I thought, I need to watch that film again and watched it again immediately. Hmm. And and it, it was even better the second time. Hmm. So I can't recommend it. And I, I would suggest to anyone, from, from all the research I've done and from everything I've read, that... If you if you stick to the Wikipedia Italian neorealist kind of uh, section on what are the main works, you can't really go that wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to La Terra Chambla uh, after your recommendation. Um, that was the first one I could get a hold of, um, which is Visconti's second film, I think. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, uh, made in 48, if I remember correctly. And I saw a lot of traits that you could recognise from Rocco as well in that one, Um, especially the themes that he's dealing with. Um, And I also have seen the Senso film, which is in the Criterion Collection, which is sort of his first real departure from the neorealist wave. It's like very melodramatic and operatic and lush, and I've seen it described as the most Viscontian film of all. And I saw The Leopard now just before we started recording. And that is also quite like operatic, very, very much a man. We follow him and his ponderous activities. He's kind of contemplating his family and his future and also the nation's future. Um, and how his family is going to survive throughout that process of this like nation changing, and it's not it's not um, based around critical happenings uh, that or critical events that are happening to his family. It's more like circumstantial events around him, and we sort of see how he is uh, reacting to those changes and also kind of trying to understand them. The, that's one thing I've noticed from Visconti in most of his films is how much time he gives to his characters trying to understand the circumstances they're in. Is that something you've picked up or? Yeah. I mean, I suppose we kind of like just kind of dial back a little bit because he makes a, a trilogy, I suppose, of Ossession, um La Terra Tremor and Bellissima. Mm-hmm. which I think are very, very... You could watch those films and say they're from the same director and know it. And then you kind of, there's a massive departure, I think, when he makes Senso. Yeah. Because it's... And Senso, I, if you watch Senso and the Leopard, 
I think you could definitely say they're from the same director, but he, he makes three films, his first three films, which I think very much have, there's, there's, there's socio-political commentary going on there. Definitely, uh, yeah. he, he is a, a, he's a dedicated um, socialist. And we have to kind of like look at Italy, especially the, ter- the Terra Tremor. I don't know if you noticed, but if you just look into the, the image, there's so many like communist propaganda posters in the background, which are kind of peeling away. Mm. And it's interesting. I, I would recommend there's a series called The Cold War and it was made as kind of a sequel to the World at War series. It was produced by Ted Turner and it was a like 26 part episode uh, series about the Cold War. But the first episode is about Italy and how it almost became a communist country after World War Two. And I would imagine for someone like Fisconti, who he during the war, sorry, he, he, he very much kind of like harboured um, communist partisans and stuff like that in his houses and there was a sense that Italy was about to go communist and what actually happened was um, the Americans got involved, the CIA got involved and they managed to keep it aligned to the West and you get a sense that when you watch The the Earth Will Tremble that that there's a kind of a hopelessness to it in a way Mm -hmm. because you have that the lead character in that is someone who he's just gone along with the the status quo for so long and he suddenly become he, he suddenly is obviously a fisherman he's suddenly like kind of like right i'm gonna change this industry i'm gonna change my circumstances with family and what happens is nothing changes in that film and it, there's there's a heroicness to that film at the end of it where he has to go back and ask for his old job back yeah and this i think one of the things that I've, I've taken out of visconti is a simplicity almost in the heroism of the characters he's where, kind of hailing that the the down and the gritty jobs like yes. the workman jobs yes and and, and and in that film I mean the, the last 15 minutes of that film are excruciating because you basically have someone who's being mocked for every belief that he's held throughout the entire film there's a there's this it's just horrendous they're literally laughing at him and they're kind of they're, they're mocking him and they're everything that man has stood for is being destroyed in front of him and yet he still goes back to the job. And I know it kind of ends with, there's a there's a hint that things might change, but I think Visconti kind of knew that um, it, it was pretty much going to be kind of carrying on as ever. And with Bellissima, you have a similar theme of people who just, this woman who just wants to escape this hideousness of the post-war Italian mm-hmm. life. Um, you know, people are poor, they're dirt poor in these films. And then you have that connecting tissue that goes through his first few films. Then you suddenly arrive at Senso, which takes place at really the birth of Italy, um, when it was trying to kind of break free of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Senso and White Knights, which is his, his next film, I don't think it's kind of sexist when we say these were films with very much, they were kind of female-orientated melodramas, especially White Knights, which was another film which was kind of made entirely on location uh, sorry no entirely on sets and it looks like it has it's one of the most artificial looking films I've ever seen but it's interesting because he does sense so and he does white nights and they're clearly you know they're, they're weepies I think it's the way the best way to describe yeah. them um, and then he takes this three year break obviously then he goes and makes Rocco and his brothers which obviously we're going to talk to in, in, in a lot more but just compare the opening of Rocco and his brothers to the leopard, which is suddenly he's got a 70 millimeter widescreen <laughs> frame. And that film is huge yeah. in its scale. And I watched the leopard again yesterday and it had been in quite a while. And I think I mentioned on another episode that I thought that 
that the Leopard was possibly the greatest looking Blu-ray that I own. And I stand by that having seen it again. It's absolutely gorgeous mm -hmm. film to watch. And when I was watching the Leopard, it was really interesting how I, I first saw it about four or five years ago and having now seen it obviously years later. And what I took from it was a sense that you have the character who he's living his life again through his nephew in a mm -hmm. way. He sees everything, not, not the, so much the mistakes that he made, but I think it's kind of a, a hymn to youth, as it were, or the, the past. And what, what I like, love about the leopard is the fact that he knows that times are changing, but he doesn't kind of believe that what was before was better. No, no. He just accepts the fact that time is moving on around him. And that last, those last scenes where he's looking in the mirror and he's, he's, he's welling up with tears. And this is what I found about Visconti is the fact that when a film works, I think it doesn't matter what time it's set in, what genre it's set in, whether or not you're watching an unknown actor or the greatest actor or the most popular, like whether you're watching someone you've never heard of before, Tom Cruise, it doesn't matter. When a film gets to something which is fundamentally true about life, I think it has the most, the biggest effect on you. Mm -hmm. And watching The Leopard, I found that it made me quite nostalgic for my, for my life, really, and, and thinking about kind of how, how far I've come or you know, times past. And I think it captures that moment perfectly, which is we kind of revere the past in a way, but we also know that it's the past, it, it, it's gone. Mm. There's nothing you can do about it. And it's not to say I, I, I've been happier in my life. It's just that you remember the past fondly. And I think The Leopard is kind of a hymn to all that. It has such a wonderful ending. And the way I thought about seeing it again was, it's a film that feels like it's building up to a massive crescendo and you never get the crescendo. Mm -hmm. You have a very kind of subtle kind of fade away. And yeah, I, I, seeing it again, um, cemented, cemented its place as one of, I think my favorite films. It is quite remarkable. I, I think I found it a bit overwhelming uh, now that I, the first time I saw it now, uh, in just that it is so epic, it's so big, it's so, it almost overpowered me and like how uh, how much was there in terms of the visuals, in terms of the characters, in terms of like, I was trying to figure out where where is this going? Where, where are we going with this? But then in the end, as you say, you kind of understand or you come to an understanding that this man, he's really, he's looking back, he's reminiscing, he's... Um, He's just contemplating his life and also not willing to do anything to make any changes. He's happy about what has been and he doesn't want to, um, he doesn't want to contribute to any new changes. He just wants to retire and pull back. And this is kind of his swan song in a way. Yeah, and it has the dance between him and Claudia Carradine. I suppose encapsulates that film mm -hmm. in which he's the best dancer there. And they're doing this, I think it's a waltz, aren't they, or something like that that they're doing. And she, she even says to him, you're a great dancer. And he, he kind, of, kind, of, kind of brushes it off. But there's a sense when you're watching it, he want, he, he's, that, that, he's, his younger self is there in the moment with her, living that moment. And the, the, sort of the, res, the, the respect that he commands from everyone around him, 
and when he finishes the dance and kind of walks off and it is a swan song it, that it totally it, it's a swan song to his life that mm. moment that just it just got me totally I I, 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 I got the film and I, I I felt how he felt really in a way yeah. and the and the, and the the, the fact that it's so beautiful to watch and it's funny as well the leopard the yeah. interactions that he has with the priest are absolutely hilarious <laughs> and i mean you've got the priest who's saying at one stage that this, this revolution is coming and he, one of he's objecting to the revolution because the poor will have something which means the church will be redundant and he's, he's like well yeah where are they going to go if if, yeah, if, if they've got everything yeah, what, what, what are we going to do? And it's like kind of, he doesn't seem to kind of see the kind of the ridiculousness of his own kind of mode of thinking. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's a beautiful film. And having watched Sandra, which is the, I watched it this morning, which is the follow-up to The Leopard. Okay. Um, you couldn't get a more claustrophobic film. Hmm. I mean, it's it's a black and white, really, the whole film is, is shot really in a medium close-up almost. And it's a, it's a, it's a strange little story of um, a brother and a sister who have had an incestuous relationship in the past and kind of how that's how, trying to kind of keep that from everyone around them knowing. It's kind of set in the fact that, that it, it, I suppose a, a follow through is, is the fact that they're both kind of quite from an upper class family. And you, you, you can kind of imagine if the kind of the people in the leopard a hundred years later or probably like 80 years later or something like that. It's the same kind of you know, socio-economic group, I suppose, that you're dealing with, but it's completely different from The Leopard. Right. That, that's as far, that, thus far as I've got in his, in his films. Um, unfortunately, you can't get hold of his next film after Sandra the Stranger, um, but I've got the rest of them, The Damn, Death of Venice, Ludwig, and, and Conversation Piece, which is coming out of massive cinema, so I fully intend on, on going for them. But he's got quite a small filmography. Uh, it's not, it's not massive by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, not at all. And the films are, every one of his films that I've seen so far, they are engaging. They are yeah. like, they are small gems, which I probably never would have sought out if it hadn't been for doing this podcast. So, yeah, it's definitely been um, in kind of the whole neorealism thing. Mm-hmm. So the neorism thing, the neorism movement in in general, really, I, I've become obsessed with Italian films. Like Visconti, the... like Visconti himself, he he isn't really a household name in the way that Antonioni and Fellini are. Yeah, it's or it's even a stress... I'd heard of Visconti, mm. but I hadn't watched many of his films. And when you kind of, he's he's a director who I I, I don't think, especially in, I suppose the circles of podcasting or. Uh, let me try and think of the word because it's certainly not you you hear proper film critics talk about him and then that sounds a little <laughs> bit uh, a little bit kind of um like i'm trying to kind of do everyone else an injustice but it's, when it comes to kind of rank and files like us you don't hear him being discussed that much hmm. um he he doesn't seem to be someone who gets um massive kind of retrospectives playing at the BFI. I, I did actually look at a few, I have access to kind of like a, kind of the, all the back issues of sight and sound. And he's there or thereabouts, but he's not as celebrated as many of the others I find. Mm-hmm. And um, especially in the case of uh, Belize Simmer and the, the, the Earth Will Tremble, 
I definitely know that I've seen two films, which right now I could say are my favourite, rank amongst my favourite films I've ever seen, and especially The Leopard. And I'm hoping that I'll discover some more gems there. But yeah, I, I feel like he deserves a lot more credit or mm. a lot more recognition and a lot more discussion than he actually gets. Mm. And especially the basis that he has such an interesting life. He's a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he also worked, as you said in the opening, that he worked as an uh, opera director and a theatre director as well as doing films all the way until his death, I think. Like he had a professional career in all three of these mediums. So uh, his, his love of opera and theatre is evident in like Senso and The Leopard and yeah, I mean, almost also Rocco, I would say. Definitely, yeah. I mean, this is the other thing as well. We have to go and talk about this person. This is someone who's from massive privilege. I know he, I mean, certainly in the case of The Earth Will Tremble, I know he subsidised a lot of that film by selling off the family jewels hmm. and doing all kinds of things. Like he'd give like handkerchiefs that were worth you know, loads of money away and things like that. But this is someone who, I talked about it on the other podcast actually before, which is the, the fact that you get a lot of filmmakers now who are making films about working class people or kind of what they perceive as being workers and they are so far off the mark it's unbelievable mm-hmm. and one of the films i railed um against was, a, was one called the selfish giant which was just one of the most one of the worst films i've ever I, i've seen in ages actually it was so it was almost patronizing how the, the, the filmmaker i think it's um chloe bernard had or Celia Blanc, I can't remember her name now, but she had, she, it, it seemed like her perception of working class life had come from reading Charles Dickens or reading crap tabloid, t- tabloids. And it just made, and, and when I researched it, it, it you know, it, it was, well, it didn't surprise me at all that she was um, from quite kind of a privileged background. And, but what, and it kind of annoys me that, that kind of way. I, I call it kind of like, um, social porn where you, mm-hmm. it's like you look at these poor people how awful their lives are and god it must be crap and you know we're to blame for this but it's so wide of mind but with visconti i i, I don't get that at all I, I think he's someone who really truly understood or understands hardship and what it's like to live in that world and it one of the things you can't say about him is despite the kind of the privilege he's come from they isn't talented um should we go on to talk about Rocco in particular definitely definitely. um I found that it was inspired partly by a novel um or part of a novel um but uh, I couldn't really find out that much about the book or the, uh, the novel itself um but it really tells the story of like a migrant family from the south of Italy the Perondi family who traveled to the industrial north, to Milan, and in the end, they sort of disintegrate and self-destruct. And just from that kind of synopsis, we really get Visconti's background right there. Like Milan and the the Marxist aristocrat that he is, he, there's, there's a sense that he really he he really embraces everything else about Italy except for the uh, the aristocratic Milan, if you get what I'm saying. Like the South, the workers, that is something that he's hailing, and the 
industrial north of Milan. Uh, it really is uh, a cesspool of sorts. Yeah, it, I mean, I've, I've been to Italy before and one of the things that struck me was I went to a football match and I think it was, um, I can't remember what team it was from the South, but it was against AC Milan. Mm-hmm. And we were in the AC Milan end and the animosity between North and South in the ground was palpable and I, I, I'm not sure how familiar our audiences are with Italian football but they make these things called TIFOs and they're massive banners basically hmm. and the AC Milan fans unfolded this banner and, and it basically called the people from the south peasants Yeah, and it sent the away end off into like an absolute kind of maelstrom of just trying to rip the ground apart, basically. And it ended with the police just doing as they do, nonchalantly firing tear gas whilst this game's going on. But, it, and I, I got a chat to the guy next to me, who was basically saying that to this day that they, they, called, they called them scum, and I can't remember what the Italian word for, for it was. But Rocco and his brothers, from the opening of the film where you have this family arriving in Milan, and you have that rather wonderful kind of train station with this kind of, it almost looks like a kind of giant sort of Meccano set. And it, it has a very ominous feel about it, mm-hmm. that these are these kind of economic migrants who have come up there. And they're the lowest of the low from the off. It, it's interesting because it, it talks, the, the film deals with the mechanics of poverty, like getting an apartment. Yeah. And it goes into great detail as to, to, as to I can't remember what the, the, the scam is or something. You have to kind of pretend that you haven't. You have to rent a place. Yeah. And rent, pay rent for a couple of months and then stop paying rent. So you're, yeah. um, so you're, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, you're thrown out. Yes. And then the, then the, the council gives you one. Yes. That's, that, that's, that, that's and they the, get a better apartment than yeah. the one they were renting. It's interesting because I mean, we live in a time, especially in England, where we have this obsession with migrants that are coming here to take our jobs. And you know, if you don't lock your door properly when you get home, they'll be here and you'll be out on the street and, and all this kind of bullshit. And Rocco and his brothers, it, it shows you the other side of that. It shows you the, rela- the reality where these yeah. people just they just want somewhere nice. They, they just want to live somewhere, basically. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they've had to uproot from the south... And I, I can't remember better as to how much detail it goes to, but as to why they've come up. But all these people are looking for essentially is somewhere to live, somewhere to kind of to be. And I, I think what I, I liked about it was that having kind of watched his filmography, I felt that this film eschewed um, White Knights and Senso and went back to the world of Bellissima and The Earth Trembles. I, I felt like it was kind of operating within the same kind of world as those two. Mm. And, and which isn't to kind of do a disservice to Senso and, and, and White Knights, but I felt like I was kind of back on ground, which I was enjoying more with Visconti when we went into Rocco and his brothers. And it's by far in advance to date on, on that point, his longest film, we're talking almost three hours. And I think what it d- does quite brilliantly is it, very slowly sets up the dynamic of the fact that this isn't going to be a film about it is to a degree a film about kind of trying to get out of the kind of the socio-economic um, place that they're in but there's something I think a lot more I suppose almost kind of Shakespearean about the relationship between those brothers and yeah. how it begins to unfold because this uh, essentially is a, is a family feud Mm-hmm. that's going on 
And what I found about, I don't know if you, I don't know if you, but it wasn't the film that I was expecting it to be. When I first saw Rocco many years ago, it always kind of surprised me slightly the direction that it takes. Because it has this kind of like, it's more kind of a story of two brothers and a a conflicting love story. Yeah, I think, um, I don't think I had any like um, notion of where it was going in in the way that I was kind of going with it. Um, Yes. I don't think um, I got like there was a rivalry or the two brothers, they would definitely follow each other all the way through. Um, But I was surprised at how much the other brothers were also given time and how much the family as a unit were kind of featured in the film. Um, Because the the first thing I noticed when I was watching the film uh, in the opening scenes there was like the, this incredibly like exuberant nature of these brothers and they're ready to take on the world and every obstacle they will be like tackled in any way possible. And there's this incredible tribal mentality, which I think represents sort of the South of Italy, um, like a real feeling of uh, family. Um, and the mother says at the end of the movie, like she's the hand that holds the five fingers together or something to that effect. Yeah. But they just can't wait for that fucking snow to fall because then we're going to make some easy money. <laughs> like yeah. they're, they're ready to do anything and they just want to work and work. And watching that kind of change slowly, but ever so slightly and just seeing that snowball roll and roll and just get larger until it's going to destroy them all. It, it was really, uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised that, that it was going to unravel at such a slow but short pace yeah you feel like you're genuinely living with these people yeah um you you, you, it's like i said really it kind of the direction it goes in and having watched it again obviously now the blu-ray from our cinema had come through it still surprises me how it kind of beds in and i i honestly always believe it's going to be about them trying to kind of attain wealth Mm -hmm. and the the fact that they're going to be doing it all for their mum and at the end of the film they're going to be living in a nice house but it doesn't go down that route at all when you see the poster for this film it kind of telegraphs where it's going and it's an incredibly violent looking poster especially on the the cover for Masters of Cinema but it it never fails to astound me how it gets to that point I I suppose it's time to talk about really the the character of Nadia who is the, the the, the, the conflict between the, the two brothers, um, Rocco. She's, yeah, the, sort of the catalyst of their demise, yes. really. And, and Simeone, because he's a complete arsehole, isn't he? That's yeah. completely, <laughs> completely honest with, yeah. with ourselves. I'll he, have more to say about him afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he is... It, it's, it's such an interesting character because only the fact that they're brothers is the thing that stops this film from descending into something more before... As it were, I, I firmly believe that if if Rocco and Simeone went brothers, they would they would come to a kind of a clash way before they do. And part of the film is the fact that there is this family bond and this loyalty between them that stops them dis- to, from descending mm-hmm. um, into in, into what happens. But it's strange because I, I feel like Nadia is, in a way, ever so slightly shortchanged by this film. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a particularly well written character. Um, I, 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 I mean, I know the, she's, she's there to serve a purpose. And it reminds me of kind of like Emily Blunt in Sicario, 
where on first viewing I did quite like that film but the more I watched it the more I realised that that, in, that that character's entire job in that film is to make stuff happen mm-hmm. she isn't a character she's simply a plot device and I felt I, I felt the same with Nadia as I was watching the film I I didn't think too much about it because um, Annie Girardo the actress playing her is I'm a huge fan of hers ever since Knights of Cabiria uh, I think she's a fantastic actress. Absolutely. Uh, and, but that character, when I'm most thinking about it in retrospect, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that character because she's, she is like the whore with the heart of gold, sort of, who comes is, into yeah. this family and just tears them apart. But then again, I mean, Simone, he's really a lunatic. And I guess the family, they just couldn't handle everything that, kind of life through at them. I mean, you could also argue that it was his personality that kind of destroyed this family. It isn't really her. And kind of those two years that we uh, we don't see, uh, the two years that pass between her leaving Simone and going with Rocco afterwards, I guess that's where her character really changed. But we don't get to see it. We just see before and the after which I think really yeah it short changes her character but um, I'm not sure I'm not sure how, how, how much I'm willing to um, like talk down on that character really yeah I, I, I personally just felt it's the weak it's the slightly weak point in the film she, the fact yeah. that, and the fact that she's so easily from you know Rocco basically tells her oh you must go back to my brother yeah that's true and, yeah. and she simply does it Mm-hmm. It's like has she not got more life life choices than that, you know. I, I I didn't get the fact that she loved him so much that she would simply just roll back up to Simeone. But she in, does leave him in the end, though. She she does. I mean, we can we can talk about that yeah, yeah. as well. The kind of the imagery of that as well. But yeah, I, I just felt that she was she was she was just being passed around for fun yeah. basically, and I, I didn't quite. I I guess it's that you know, without it, you don't have a film. I, I suppose you know, this is the kind of like you know when you get into the kind of the, the, the minutia of, of, of film in this way but I just felt in, in, that was the only kind of sticking point that I did actually have but the fact that as well that he, he, Visconti gives this film this kind of the, the, the setting of the boxing ring mm-hmm. as well I, I think is really interesting because Simeone becomes like a local hero as such he managed to to integrate into the place they are through violence or control violence, as it were. And I found that quite interesting because I think it gave the film a really kind of a, a, quite a gritty edge to it. And I, I guess it's time to talk about really the uh, the influence of this because, I mean, I suppose like a lot of people, when you first get into films, one of the, one of the, film, one of the film directors you always come across is Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Everyone goes through the mask, Martin Scorsese obsession stage, and I'm still out over it. So <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's 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 certainly one. But he, he's one of those. He, he's he's one of you. He's one of the first auteurs who you come across. That, Definitely, he's yeah, accessible and, and he's still present. And yes. he's made some classics that everyone will catch on telly at some point. Yes, and watching Rocco made me appreciate Raging Bull. A lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, you can definitely it, see where they got the character of Jake Lamossa from. Yes, totally. 
and that, there's a there's a documentary called uh, My Journey to Italy that um, yeah 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 Scorsese directed, um, and w- which he talks about all these films and he kind of goes through his favorite Italian ones and that kind of thing, and this is def- this is discussed in it, but seeing it again. I, I would love to know how how much he was kind of going into Rocco because obviously it's kind of um, you know Raging Bull was made it's a black and white film made in the early eighties a time when people weren't making black and white films mm-hmm. anymore and, and suddenly it goes back to and frame for frame sometimes when I was watching this I, I could see echoes of Raging Bull in it and it, it made me want to go and watch those films it made me want to go and watch kind of more Scorsese films and the the, the fact that you have I suppose people do, like boxing is in the world of cinema boxing is almost fantastical mm. especially in relation to like the likes of rock of rocky um it's it, it's this kind of it, it doesn't quite the reality doesn't kind of quite, quite live up to kind of what we see in, on film and i think with what rocco and his brothers does is it shows kind of this is low level boxing yeah and it's like it's it's, it's more like punch-ups basically for a bit of cash <laughs> and, and you, get, you get that sense that this is kind of you know he's he's, he's you know Simeone's earning scraps basically yeah to, to, to pay things and there's kind of like Rocco gets off and it it always surprised me as well because the one direction I was wanting this film not to go down was where they were going to have a boxing match because I thought that when the first time I ever saw it was I, I thought oh god it's going to end up with them two in the ring having mm. a scrap and it doesn't because the, the real fight is going on between those two and Nadia yeah yeah definitely um, I, I also thought that perhaps we're going to get some sort of clinch in the ring but we really get it between or Nadia is the one that receives the punches sort of yes totally in a in a like truly gruesome horrifying scene I mean yeah I mean, let's. I mean, let's just talk about that moment. I mean, can you actually believe that happens? I mean, I, I really, I wasn't like asking any questions when it did. I was just kind of feeling sorry and got in, like the pit of my stomach kind of dropped a bit. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I believed it, and yeah, I, I could see it uh, in the sense that the character of. Um, the character of Simone, he's, I mean, this charming but ultimately doomed man, he, he really doesn't know how to control himself and he's no. completely incapable of accepting like shame and sadness and defeat and he's always turning to like anger and manipulation and control that he really displays just so that he can come across as the strong man and the like the one who never never fails and this big loving man who just had his heart broken uh, when she rejected him he's incapable of accepting that and in that way like Renato Salvatore the the actor he plays that anguish and those tortured emotions just in such a raw and thunderous way just like De Niro in Raging Bull and I found him even a bit more likeable than De Niro's character though who's just completely despised I have actually some affection for Simone Mm. and yeah yeah, that that scene um, I completely believe it yeah yeah I mean I I, I didn't actually think it was going to happen 
was waiting for, I was waiting for something to happen and it doesn't and it's it's shocking it's the, the brutality of it the the reasons why he's doing it, it it's you think that's his brother he's doing it to just to get one over his brother yeah and um yeah it, it it's jaw dropping yeah and then and to sit in a film and it's it, it's by far in advance today it, it's the most I, I, I think it's the scene in Visconti's career of all the films that I've watched so far that it, it, it's just the moment I think where as a filmmaker it, it just shows how how much mastery of his craft that he has in the fact that you you don't want to watch it and but you you can't help but not watch it and feel the the, the just the, the absolute horror of the characters that mm. are going on it and you it's the acting the direction the everything about it it's absolutely horrific yet completely I think just kind of tears through the screen as it were and just gets you it, mm-hmm. it, it completely scars you I, I think watching it I mean I was kind of there's nothing like it I've, I've seen so far in any of his films it's, it's quite a radical departure I think from anything that he's done mm-hmm. and it when you, when you watch kind of kind of Rocco's reaction to it and the, you know Nadia kind of screaming out for him not to do it, it it's just yeah it, it's it's so brutal and so chilling mm. as well and especially what what follows afterwards the fact that you know, she she goes back to him after that yeah and it, it, the, the tragedy of it i think i think is it's just so profound mm. i mean um like this is a a huge film in that it's almost melodramatic of sorts there are huge emotions at stake here and I think that Visconti it really shows that he has evolved for me in his storytelling capabilities um, from The Earth Trembles because in my in when I watched The Earth Trembles I, I really liked it it it's not that different a tale as we were talking about. It deals with his family in the South and their day-to-day lives. But I felt like it relied too much on narration in a way that it worked against it. It was often like commenting unnecessarily on action and characters' thoughts. And in Rocco, it seems like he's relying more on acting and most of all, the use of sound as a storytelling technique. And it feels like he has a more clear and precise vision of the film. And it really comes through in the direction in that he knows every inch of the film. He's he's steady, like guiding us through it. And he also has cast the characters perfectly. And he, in The Earth Trembles, I felt like one of the things that held me back was kind of wooden, wooden acting. Uh, in a way, there were some weak actors, especially the main character for me. He he came across as somewhat stunted, but in Rocco, the actors like truly shine in all regards, especially Alain Delon in Rocco. I think I would, I would say on that is um, the fact that in um, The Earth Trembles, mm-hmm. uh, that's completely non-professional actors. Yeah. So I mean, these were people who'd never been in a film before. Yeah. So I, I, I can I can understand why 
um, perhaps the acting doesn't stand up. But I think as well, the Earth Trembles, I think it's making a point in that film. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the thing about it is, is that he, he's not trying to be subtle. The, the Earth Tremble is, is almost like a propaganda piece. It's telling us about the fact that um, it originally started off, I mean, the, the, the origins of the, the Earth Tremble's were he was commissioned by the Communist Party to make a film about fishermen in that era. Hmm. Um, and this is the film, and that was the film that kind of evolved from that. So I think its, it's intentions are completely um, different. And I think with, with Rocco, um, it relies on its melodramatic elements for its punch. And it, like I said, I think it's you can see the DNA of um, the Eiffel Trimble, but really in order, I think, to appreciate Rocco more, go and watch Senso and White Knights, because White Knights especially... Uh, which is out on Criterion, actually. Um, it, it's almost like an hour and a half film that just builds up to a single gut-wrenching punchline. Mm. And Rocco kind of does. But White Knights, I would contest, doesn't have any of the socio-political commentary that precedes it. And I think Rocco has the melodrama of White Knights, but some of the socio-political commentary of his previous films. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a hybrid of the two. But I think, obviously, he's cast professional you know, actors, um, especially Alain Delon, who, may make no mistake, he's, he's a fantastic actor, but I think uh, Renato Salvatore is, is the is does the best work Absolutely. of the film. Um he's very much the uh, the star of the show but I think it, it, like like I said it's the departure it's, it's, sorry it's the marrying of certain interests that he clearly has in film from mm. the, the, the message films I suppose of his first three in those kind of melodramatic elements of the last which is why I think to date Rocco is the best of his films they've seen I can't it, yeah, I definitely think it's superior to, to anything he's done. I'm, like I said, I've, I've got a few more to go before I can kind of categorically make that decision. But Rocco, for me, feels like this is the moment where it's all come together mm-hmm. as a filmmaker and as an artist. I think it, it, it seems to kind of contain everything that he says, that he wants to say about the world and, and how he communicates that through film. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that this is sort of a, a hybrid of... The, the the pre-Rocco work and the post-Rocco work almost, um, where it's sort of marrying two elements. And one of the criticisms that I came across a lot like doing research for this episode was the fact that people seem to think that Rocco was made up of parts that didn't really gel together. And I, I, I can't understand quite like, I don't know what to say to that other than they're wrong. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, the thing is, it's, you, you get very definitive chapters in this. Like, yeah. it kind of like tries to kind of like it, it, each brother gets its own little section. And don't forget, like two years pass from when he gets called up to the army mm-hmm. to when he meets Nadia again and that, all that kind of stuff. So it does feel quite episodic in a way. That didn't bother me at all. I have to say, um, I, I, I didn't feel that the dramatic impetus of the film was affected by that. No. I don't think it affected how I felt about the characters. I felt that the the, the time um, that elapses gives time for, gives time for everyone to kind of like breathe a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it, it creates the um, the bedrock by which she can go from Simeone to him. 
because if it was taking part in a very kind of like you know, you know three week time span of her going from Simeone to to Rocco, I'm not sure you would believe it as much. Mm. And it, it gives the characters time to change. Yeah. And that's the thing about her. You know, she, gets, she I mean, I know it's about like, the whole of the heart of gold, but when she meets Rocco, she does seem like a different person. Yeah. I find totally, and I, I believed the fact that they were in love. And I think it kind of, um, it highlighted the tragedy of the situation mm-hmm. a lot more. Um, I felt the fact that it was, I felt there was more at stake because of the time that had had, had elapsed. I mean, I, I, I to be brutally honest, I haven't read anything like that to, to say that. Um, I know people who have seen the film who invariably said they found it quite boring mm. up until like they, they, it's an interesting hour and then there's like a, a middle section that they find a little bit flabby. I don't think that personally I could see any way I could change it or I'd want to change it. Uh, I mean, people were calling it the death of neorealism. And yeah, uh, I, f- I just felt like there was so, um, there were like completely, there were review- reviews out there completely trashing the film, and I, I just can't understand. Well, I mean, cinema changed as well. Yeah. By, by this stage. I mean, if you go, if you look at the death of neo realism, I mean, from many people said Umberto D was the death of neo realism. Uh, that, that's from from what I've come across. I mean, this is you know, we're talking 1960 now. You know, Antonioni's kind of crops up on the mark. You know, it's strange because when you watch um, Antonioni films, mm-hmm. the, the, they, they, there's that kind of that brilliant kind of trilogy of um, La Ventura, Lemici, and um, uh, La Notte, yeah. where those theme the, the, those films to me are about privileged people with not a great deal going on in their lives, meandering from one party to the next. Mm-hmm. But there's something utterly compelling about them. I mean, in my, two of my favourite films, and what Visconti, I think, goes before is that they're people who have everything in their life to play for, especially in the case of Bellissima, but they're, they're about people who, they've, they've got so much going on, so many things happening. And to call this the kind of, the death of of neo-realism I think is to kind of it's just it's just a film being made in a different age times have changed yeah and the the way in which you know, Italian society has changed and mm. to me whereas kind of Antonioni's kind of like looking at kind of more affluent side of things Visconti's kind of still perhaps kind of well he's gone back definitely not he's gone back to kind of social issues and is, the, the lower end of society, to have to put it. Yeah, I mean, in 1960, you also saw La Dolce Vita, you saw La Ventura. I mean, Visconti really is something else, and he's incredibly, like, expressive in his own right, in that he is very, like, epic, and perhaps epic and operatic in an old-fashioned kind of way. There's yeah. an expressiveness and a melodrama that we don't really see with Fellini and Antonioni. Yeah, I mean Fellini as well. Don't forget, I mean, like, you know, F- Fellini is—he's—he's films are crazy. It's operatic in a way yeah. that they're, like, they're ludicrous as well. A lot yeah. of the time, you know, they're just, they're, they're just an explosion of fun. A lot of them, yeah. you know, there isn't—they're very idiosyncratic. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just crazy stuff happening. And I mean, you think like the Dolce Vita came out that time, you know, the Dolce Vita 
is a film, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's a film in which filmy things happen. Mm -hmm. People get in fountains and start bathing (laughs) and and, and stuff like that. And and Rocco Eastbrook isn't like that. No. It it doesn't kind of... It it doesn't kind of chuck you the bone of uh, fantasy, I suppose. It... It feels like it's very much rooted in a kind of, perhaps in a way when they say it's the death of neorealism, perhaps they say it was kind of trying to harken back to neorealism. Perhaps that was the, the, the criticism that I was going on. It, it feels like a film that's being made, made in a time when people, it's a film that looks backward in a time perhaps where people were looking forward. Mm-hmm. This, and that like, might be the issue with it yeah the, the review I read um, I can't remember which one it was now but he was using it uh, or her I can't remember it, they were stating it in a way that it really shows that neorism doesn't really work anymore or something to that effect really that uh, it came across as quite stale uh, yeah yeah I, I mean I completely disagree yeah as <laughs> well um, <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's, it's a valid criticism. I think of all his films, it, it really holds up. I, it, it, I mean, it obviously, completely... he, he is dealing with like current issues and the Italian government, they, they really gave him like problems when he was trying to produce this film in that they were laying like all sorts of restrictions on how he was supposed to make the film, where he could shoot the film, because they didn't want people to become aware that there were migration issues in Italy and that the South were really that poor and that the North is really crumbling due to all the people that are coming there looking for work. I mean, he is really dealing with issues that are important for the country. Yeah, I mean, end of the day, people don't like really dealing with reality Hmm. to an extent. Um, And it's... it doesn't surprise me that the government... I mean, you think, you, know, you go and watch um, the Dolce Vita. What film are you going to sell Italy on? You know, what, what film sells Italy better? La Dolce Vita or Rocco and his brothers? Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, La Dolce Vita is this kind of like, you know, fantasy, yeah. beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful locations. And you've got Rocco and his brothers, which is this just horrible tale of two <laughs> brothers fighting over a prostitute. I don't want to meet so, Nadia. I don't want to meet Anita Ekman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You want you want to be walking. You want to be walking. You, you want to kind of be stumbling through a town and come across a, a fountain, and and and, and see, I mean, it's, it's one of those iconic moments in yeah. cinema, isn't it? In, in eight and a half, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's an amazing scene. But it's, it, yeah, it, it, I, I, I guess sometimes it, what what film does it does shine a light onto areas of society that we don't, and I've, I've I've moaned about it incessantly that at the moment when it happens I feel like it's a form of tourism. Mm-hmm. Um, with Rocco and his brothers, I don't think it is. I think it's I, I think it's genuinely making a point. Yeah, I think it's I think it's genuinely showing us something which is worth looking at, mm. um, and it, it achieves its ends incredibly well. The, the the fact of the matter is, I mean, how how do you kind of feel about where this film ends up? I mean, that was. Sort I, I, suppose, of, I, suppose, I suppose to refine my question, yeah. can you believe it ends where in murder? Um, that was perhaps a bit too far for me. Yeah, um, yeah. that was one where 
I could sort of go with it because it has been building and building and building. And I truly believe that this character is like mad with rage and he is completely stunted emotionally. But um, it does come across as a bit, a bit much going to murder. Uh, but then again, the scene with Simone and Rocco lying on the bed crying in like silence almost, it just makes it all worth it for me. So yeah. it's just so incredibly impactful. And I, it's it's a strange one because it's like I, I was I was kind of gobsmacked as to where it goes, but for me it all comes back to the mother, mm-hmm. and the fact that she can't believe that this is her boy. And, you know, in, it's this Italian mother's. You know, she's got these five sons who she dotes over. Yeah, and like you say, to see those two on the bed, and it's. I mean, it's it's absolutely crushing, mm-hmm. but I, I suppose the way it's kind of done, which is kind of it's so symbolic and it's so kind of laden with imagery. Yeah. When she's up against the, um, I mean, it's crucifix. She's sacrificing herself, isn't she? And the imagery is all very kind of like Christ-like, mm-hmm. but it it felt like it was going a little bit too far. I was like, kind of like perhaps it needs to be dialed in a little bit, but. Again, I mean, if it doesn't happen, it's not the film that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it just—I don't know. I—I—I I, I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't quite expecting it. It's certainly not very comfortable, which I don't think is necessarily a criticism. It's probably more, it's more about my um, discerning nature when it when it comes to the film. But I—I I felt like it was. Everything gets kind of ratcheted up to to fifteen out of ten. Yeah, basically for for, for a, a certain, I suppose, emotional impact, and especially when you compare it to his his, his other films, I don't think they have that kind of bombast about them. Mm-hmm. Especially if you think about the what comes next, the leopard. Yeah, it, it doesn't go anywhere near that. Like, it doesn't kind of ratchet things up to that kind of level, and I don't think any of these previous films do either. No, and that that kind of threw me when I was watching the leopard because I was. A, kind of expecting this kind of lush of emotions uh, and he never really go there <laughs> yeah the, the thing about the, the, I can only equate it to to um, like there was a, a video posted a while back and it was a nightclub in Ibiza and it was like 6 o'clock in the morning I think the DJ was Maceo Plex and at the end of an evening of a DJ you expect to play a massive tune mm. and what he does what he did was and it, it the crowd were all getting pumped up and he just he just stops and everyone's like, oh. And people can't quite believe that the ending hasn't come. Yeah. And that's how I sort of feel about The Leopard. It kind of just goes, that's your lot now. Yeah. And I'm just going to walk off into the... And Visconti does that, I think, in a lot of films, especially like in Terra Firma, where you, you, you want him to kind of show the kind of the... The, the racket that's going on that you know he's going to be better and he doesn't have to kind of like conform to it in the end and he just kind of go he just sort of meanders back into his life so or he just accepts his life as well but mm. Rocco probably seems to be the one where I think Visconti kind of lets go a little bit and really kind of wraps everything up and it so it, it's yeah the, it, it feels like a massive explosion of emotion and melodrama mm-hmm. and, and and watching Luca kind of wander off at the end there, the younger brother. It, it really does feel like he is he is the future of Italy. He is like the yes. innocence and he will return to the South. 
Yes, no, definitely. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, it, it has a perfect ending, I think, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's that sort of the, the family's kind of gone for the tragedy. But that, that's the other kind of thing I, I found about it was that, that that final kind of scene of him walking off into the factory seems a little bit odd. That seems more like the Visconti that goes before Rocco and his brothers than the ending that we get. No, I'm sorry, I mean, what, what goes before. Mm-hmm. That that feels like a more natural way. That would feel like a more natural conclusion. Something a little bit more, less hideous than what we get because you don't understand. Does it even does it say what happens to Simeone? I'm assuming he goes to prison. I don't think it states that though. Does it? I can't no, but Chira he goes off to the police. So I'm assuming that Simeone yeah. goes off to jail. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's a. It, I feel like there's kind of like two films going on towards mm-hmm. the end and I think I prefer the one where it, what happens now it doesn't happen to Nadia. I don't think it was entirely necessary um, but like I said you, you get that kind of you, you get the scene with them on the bed and it's just this kind of roar you know, it's an explosion of emotion coming out of both of them yeah um, the use of close-ups in this film I mean it really goes with the the hugeness uh, of emotions where he uses them very sparingly but incredibly effective especially in that rape scene that we've been talking about but also that final scene with Rocco and Luca um, where they're talking uh, to one another and it really speaks not only to how he trusts the actors but also like Alain Delon's acting capabilities and how he has created this very empathic character and Visconti just holds his face and really trusts that he is able to pull it off really yeah the close-up is I mean it's it's the most personal shot in cinema isn't it yeah there's no escaping a close-up and if you think about um, a Sergio Leone film Mm -hmm. a close-up in that of someone's eyes and you get all that kind of burning rage and desire. You, you know what's going on as soon as you see it. You, yeah. you, you, see, you see those eyes, you know, it's, you know exactly what the character is thinking. And the, like I say, the, to, to pull a close-up off, you have to have a good actor or mm-hmm. a great actor because otherwise you're just not going to buy it. And yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you that when you get when you get those moments, it's, it's the most intimate thing you will ever see in cinema. Yeah. And I, I think when he does use them in, in Rocco, yeah, like say during the, during the, the rape scene, everything you know, you, you get everything he feels in having to go through that. Mm. You, you see it, and you see it on the faces of the people who Simeone's brought in to help him. Yeah. At those moments, they're horrified as <laughs> yeah. much as, as you are. Yeah. Uh, every, everyone involved in that scene is horrified, but you, as a viewer, you're horrified by it. Everyone is involved apart from Simeone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's strange because you suddenly go from these kind of like these hired idiots that he has and suddenly you almost feel sorry for him. Yeah. Having to go through that. And yeah, obviously Nadia's a person who's being you know, violated, obviously. But you, you, you sense they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, this wasn't what I signed up for. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, again, I mean, I can only think back to kind of what, what goes before. I, I don't think the use of the close-up in his previous film, I can't remember it being used as effectively in those as it is in this. Mm. Certainly not in The Leopard, where obviously the screen's about three miles wide. So. Oh, uh, I, I remember like certain close-ups of Burt Lancaster in the end. Oh, when he's crying, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, when he's crying, yeah, definitely. I mean, Sorry. that is a stroke of genius there, but um, 
um, what was I going to say? Yeah, the use of music. Nina wrote his score for Rocco. I noticed that he used his Godfather music there. I mean, well, he did compose it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it wasn't like it seems like it was a slightly altered version, and that he has kind of restructured it when he composed Godfather. Yeah, I, I no, I, I, I got that, and as, as well, I felt that the music was quite, it was quite contemporary as well. Yeah, it's kind of like a jazz vibe going through it. Yeah. Um, what did it remind me of? Uh, Sweet smell of success. Have you ever seen that with um, uh, Tony Curtis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of had that kind of it was an element of sleaze to it. Yeah, definitely. Which I got, and and and, and um, it's certainly the first film I've seen of Visconti to date. Where the mute, where the score felt like it was contemporary mm-hmm. to to the film, as opposed to being just a traditional score, um, and I think it was yeah, there was a, definitely an element that there was, it, it's quite sleazy, and there's an element like say that, that, that those Godfather moments where you could hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it reminded me in a way of the fact that I mean I've, I've got a few Nino Ron uh, scores and. He like like a lot of composers. Once you really get into their music, you do sense that they just kind of riff off the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Howard Shaw, James Horner, they all seem to do it. Um, I suppose the really great ones, the, the really great composers, the ones that make you kind of feel like you're, you're hearing something very similar for the first time again. Um, but I, I, I don't know enough about music and kind of um, the the mechanics of composition to say like you know what how similar it is to the godfather but i i I saw the dna of it in it as it were yeah absolutely um the the final thing that kind of struck me was that these like three hour epics where you gather actors from all over the world um they don't seem to happen i mean you have actors from greece france and italy all in the same movie and probably due to dubbing, this doesn't happen again. But um, I mean, I think this is, in that way, this film is rather unique in a modern setting because we did we just don't get movies like this anymore. Um, well, we do sort of we do get them with stunted acting, but three-hour epics, which are they're still kind of rare for me. I think, especially yeah. that aren't like action-laden. Star yeah, Wars movies. Yeah, they're not fantasy. You yeah, know, you, you, your fantasy films tend to be a bit longer. But no, you don't get kind of. I, I don't think you get. I suppose the thing about Visconti films is that, as I was going back to, they're very simple stories. Yeah. Well, seemingly simple stories that they're about nuance and uh, kind of subtlety, mm-hmm. and they kind of they build and they build and they build, and sometimes they build into a way which they don't kind of explode as it were but they kind of just build and build it and then something like just end on something of a whimper or not so much a whimper but kind of not with the kind of the, the bombast you would expect and it's, it's really sad because watching these I mean you see I don't see films like this anymore but I see film I see I see people riffing off films like this mm. to a degree um, but I don't see, there's nothing that's come out recently or I mean, I I am struggling this year with film, to be brutally honest with you, to find things to want to go and watch. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it comes from the fact that I just don't feel like I'm getting fulfilled enough by what I'm seeing. I, I don't I don't I don't really see 
anything that particularly interests me or would hold me. I, I shouldn't um, moderate sort of my statement because, I mean, this came from Italian cinema as well. So we didn't really see these kinds of films in American cinema neither. So probably if I was looking elsewhere more, uh, I mean, you have films like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which we both love. And I also love like Winter Sleep, which is this three hour epic with um three three hours plus jesus christ i saw saw someone walk out five minutes before the end of that film and i was like mate i i I saw someone literally crack watching a film it was it was unbelievable the film when i saw it half the cinema walked out but i mean that film it sort of builds and builds but it really doesn't end in a big bang but it deals with these small nuances so I guess we do still get these sort of uh, films, but I, I guess what I'm saying is I want more. <laughs> yes, definitely. I want, I want more. It's, it, yeah. oh, Christ, it sounds so pretentious, but I want more for my mind. Yeah. I want to think about things more. And Rocco and his brothers is something which I, I, I would probably put this film in my top 20, I think. Yeah. having seen it again I, I think it's kind of like worthy of kind of being held up there because you think about it so much afterwards um, and you, you can go back to it and there's so much to enjoy and I, it seems to it gives me something which I find profoundly lacking like we, we talked about it a little bit but something like The Revenant which is that I, I don't think the artistry behind The Revenant does service to the story whereas I feel in this you, something like Rocco and his brothers you get both I think mm. the artistry does service to the both complement each other yeah. is what I'm trying to say and I think with something like The Revenant I don't get that okay. I just get like I, I get a, a load of really great looking stuff that with a really paper thin story um, with characters who just kind of grunt and moan their way through it but with Rocco and his brothers especially in the Ian Enderloon character or Rocco himself mm. um, it's from what the character goes through during the course of this film um, I think it's so profound and moving mm. and the, the the artistry obviously um, and um, Visconti brings to it I think everything just works together to create dare I say I mean I'm going to talk about the film's kind of flaws in me, but it's almost a perfect film I think in some respects in terms of what I get out of it from what I want out of a film mm. I get it out of it yeah uh, I agree most of what you said. I, I think I'm a bigger fan of The Revenant than you are. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I still, I think I moderated my excitement for it um, for the months that have passed, but uh, I still enjoy that immensely. But Rocco, yeah, it was, I mean, it was one of those films where I wanted to watch it. I knew you were a big fan of it. And I got it in the mail and it said three hours. And I stuck it on a shelf and it was there for like six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is it? What is it? <laughs> you tell me this. What is it? That you can sit there and you can watch four episodes of a TV I series know. that will easily come in at three hours. You can watch two one and a half hour films that will come in at three hours. What is it when you see a film and it's two and a half hours plus and you go, oh. <laughs> And it, we all do it. I mean, Christ, I was going to watch um, um, the the next Visconti film. The name escapes me. What was it going to be? Sorry. I, I, I was literally prepping to watch it. 
about three o'clock this afternoon, I put on what was it? Uh, the Damned, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the DVD, and it was one hour and fifty-four minutes. I thought, oh, fuck that! And it's at three o'clock, and I just thought, no, hang on a minute, you're not speaking to Yoke <laughs> for another five hours. What else are you going to do? So what did I do? I happily watched three episodes of The Americans, which was almost the same running time. I asked around doing something else, playing catch with the cat or something like that. Yeah. I could have easily have watched that film during yeah. that period. But there's, there's a mental block sometimes that happens when you see those running times and you just go, oh. But then it's like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, Visconti is the medicine for that syndrome, I think. Yeah, I don't even know what symptom it is. You can't be asked itis i don't know but there's something <laughs> there's something terrifying about sitting in the same place for three hours yeah. when it's just one thing but we do it all the time yeah we sit do. at work you sit at work i sit at work for seven hours but i think um that was one thing that was really trying trying to prepare for this um this episode watching this content because he never makes a film i mean all the films that i've seen of his were two and a half hours three hours sandra's an hour and a half yeah so um, I have something to look forward to, but yeah, yeah, um, and and you do have something to look forward to watching that film because it's brilliant as well. But yeah, he he, he is. I mean, the Terra Firma as well. I mean, that was another one. Two and a um, half hours or something. Yeah, uh, I think White Nights is only about an hour and a half. Okay, uh, but if it feels a little bit longer that film because it, it it's almost yeah it's like like I said really, it's kind of it's all built up for emotional punchline. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty flimsy story, really. They're just building up for one big final kick in the nuts. But the leopard, I, I, for me, the leopard scene, that again, that flew by. Yeah. Um, purely because, of, mostly because I'm just sort of sat there gawping at the imagery. Um, um, just seeing that frame, that, that widescreen frame, and just how gorgeous the Blu-ray did you, I mean, I'm assuming, did you see it on Blu-ray? Yeah, the Criterion one, yeah. Yes, I mean, it's, it's stunning. Yeah. It's just unbelievably good looking as is Rocco and his brothers to be fair I, I think as, I'm so glad Master Cinema have done the Blu-ray upgrade on this mm-hmm. uh, there were a couple of scenes where there were sort of um, like uh, some black spots or areas in the scene where suddenly it took like um, I don't know if it was my TV that can't really handle the darker levels all too well I don't know if you noticed that one I didn't, to be honest, I didn't see any, okay. like, anything like that. It might that. be my TV think. because it's. I think it's 10 years old or something. So. Did you not watch it on, uh, what about your projector? Uh, it's too light outside. <laughs> so uh, when I'm watching Dark movies, in that room, yeah, with Kim. Uh, I can't. <laughs> I, I I do have curtains, but uh, the the curtain rod, is that what you call it? Um, it kind of broke, so I can't really oh, blacken the living room yet. No. Unfortunately, but I'm look. I'm looking forward to fall and winter because I'm, then I'm going to fire up the projector all day long. So yeah, no, definitely, yeah. But um, I think we reached the end of our episode. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, it's been quite a journey going through Visconti, and I think I'm going to continue it after we finish this episode. Even so. Um, oh no, definitely, and I think we we should definitely go back and look at Blamesia uh, again. Yeah, um, that's what I really, yeah. really, I really, really want that to come out on. Um, Blu-ray, yeah. Blu-ray. Even though the DVD um, looks amazing, and I, I, I've said, I, I've mentioned this before, but I feel sorry for DVD. It's not bad as a format. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we're, we're in the age of 
Blu-ray UHD and all that kind of... You go back to the good old Blu-ray. It's, it's hardly VHS, let's be brutally honest with you. Yeah. And I went back and watched Blumicio and I was like, holy God, yeah, this looks really good. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know it, it, it still looks pretty great. Um, I suppose this, this is a quick question for you, actually, because I've got kind of a, a mild uh, kind of deviation from the norm. If Master Cinema and Criterion go into this kind of newfangled, you know, ultra-high definition Christ. territory... Are you going to? Um, I, don't, I, uh, I am going to buy the... Uh, because the Xbox um, console yes. is coming out with a Blu-ray uh, yes. UHD player. And I am going to buy that one um, yes. and upgrade my Xbox. So I will have, I will have the means... Um, but will I uh, will I do it? Uh, I'm not sure because it, it is quite a hefty investment to re-upgrade the library. And I will be... I can't really see them going down that road because, I mean, people are, haven't even converted to Blu-ray yet. So yeah. I think it's a bit too much to ask them to go to UHD. Yeah, I'm nervous. I mean, if it if you could do a dual format, that would probably I would I would buy every one of those. Yeah, but unless I mean, this, unless it's dual format, I'll probably stick to Blu-ray. So yeah, I mean, this is the thing where I'm I'm going to buy the um, PlayStation, the new PlayStation Neo. I think it's called like PlayStation Four, Four Point Five, whatever it is. Yeah, and I'm I'm I'm, playing, I'm holding out for that, and I, I need to get a new. TV, I don't need one, but I'm going to get one anyway. But <laughs> and uh, obviously, the times are coming out, but to, to, it's kind of price points goes. I was looking at oddly enough, I was looking at the Reverend on UHD, yeah. And for eighteen ninety nine, yeah. you got the UHD, the Blu-ray, and the digital download. Although I've never used one of them, but I thought eighteen ninety nine for UHD and the Blu-ray, that's a pretty good deal. It's it's only like two pounds more expensive than the Blu-ray. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah, and and I sort of thought that's not a bad deal. And then I was sort of like thinking, well, say they did start going down the route of putting, you know, going back again, and I'm I'm scared that I'm going to. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on. I, I guess it would depend on how far back are they willing to upgrade. If they're only going to upgrade their Blu-ray, I don't quite see how much of a difference it would make because most people's televisions, they are 50 or less, I would say, mm. 50 inch. Yeah. And when you're going that small, you don't, you're not really going to see that much of a difference. So it is, it is quite a small customer base that they would be targeting who would get an actual effect out of this. I mean, we who own projectors, we would probably get the most effect out of it. But... Yeah. Do you really know that many people who own projectors? No. No. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a big unknown, and it's how good are these... I mean, I know because obviously new films are being shot on 8K and downgraded to 4K <laughs> and all this kind of thing. I mean, you know, the, 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 it's a case of how much, you know, I, I suppose kind of... How how much are we going to be watching? Was Rocco and his brothers ever intended to be seen? Yeah. On a format like UHD, I'm not entirely sure it was to be brutally honest with you, but I was thinking about that. Be int- I was thinking about that when I was watching Leopard actually, because you could see 
really some of the markings from the um the, from the, the makeup, makeup. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and you can see that the the hair pieces yeah exactly yeah i mean I, I saw a 4k um restoration of lawrence arabia and you could see omar sharif's wig mm-hmm. like the actual kind of mesh of his wig and i was thinking i've never noticed that before i've seen that film on 70 millimeter before i've never noticed that mm-hmm. and it yeah it, it's a strange one i i, I don't I'm not, I'm not. I'm not sure how it's going to surface uh, service older films. Yeah. But um, I'm slightly nervous. I know what I'm like. That this is the this is the problem. Yeah. It's it's going to be expensive. <laughs> I mean, As you always. need a new receiver. You need a new television. Um, you need a new player. I mean, yeah. But we said that about Blu-ray. This is yeah. the this is the thing. <laughs> We're doomed. <laughs> I, I, I'm already convincing myself. Oh God. Here we go again, but no. We'll listen to this but, in like three years, and yeah, we'll just. Stop. I know. <laughs> yeah, we sound like a pair of dinosaurs. No, but that being said, I would say the Blu-ray of um, the Master Cinema put out fully does this film justice. Yeah. Um, saying that the DVD looked pretty great before, but you get you and, and the extras as well. This gets hour-long make um, hour-long documentary about Visconti, which is amazing. Just just look at his, his summer house on Lake Como. Oh, really? I, I didn't oh, get God. around to watching the actress, no, no, no. Uh, but uh, I really want to. <laughs> no, do, definitely. It, it, it's well, they're, they're all well worth checking out. I think this film more, I think the disc more than does justice to, to, to the film. Great. Right, uh, let's start wrapping things up. Um, what's going definitely. on with the 24 Frames cast? Um, I've got two episodes in the work. Um, this, this, this episode of Master Mutt will probably get out before the episode we did with Birth of the Nation. There has been a few issues of that, which I will post an update on Facebook. We did another episode with John Jansen um, from the Hollywood Gornet, but we've run into a couple of issues um, technologically-wise, um, a slight recording issue, which uh, might prove a little bit of a pain in the ass. So I need to kind of... I, I threw a bit of a wobbly, mm. I think is the poly word I've described it. I was, and I was like, I can't deal with this right now. It's annoying me too much. But I've been away for a week. I've come back. I've managed to kind of um, get my head back on and it will be finished. But this, this episode will be out before that. So, mm-hmm. But there's more to come, definitely. So. Absolutely. Uh, we've been on a bit of a summer hiatus, um, which has been really nice. Just kind of, um, I don't know. Uh, I felt like I needed uh, a little podcasting break and I needed to get some money into the bank. And now, in the future, I think I'll have a lot more spare time to do some podcasting. And we have uh, we have filled up our schedule pretty good uh, the next couple of definitely. months. So, good. No, we definitely. I don't like... I don't, I, especially when it comes to the Criterion feed as well. Mm-hmm. I sometimes... I don't like seeing everyone else putting more episodes in. <laughs> I feel a strange, a strange sense of uh, competition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. Exactly. Um, I do, I do want to uh, become more productive as well. Um, so uh, we'll try. We'll, we'll try to up our game. Definitely. Um, listener, you can really help us out um, by going to iTunes and leaving a review, uh, and also please write us an email or catch us on Twitter or. Facebook um, and give us a comment on the episode we're making. Um, you can send us an email at mastercinema or is it mastercinemacast at gmail? Or is it? Yes. Yeah. You can send us an email at mastercinemacast at gmail.com and you can visit our website at mocast.blogspot.com or criterioncast.com there. So excellent. Find us on Twitter as well or Facebook, as I was saying. 
Uh, so, Tom, thank you for joining me. Cheers, matey. And thank you, listener, for joining in. And until next time, goodbye.